Wow. That's, that's awesome. Did you guys hear that? Melissa can breathe better already and not coughing with every, every word and stuff. So that is awesome. Praise God. Well, let's, uh, let's pray for Kevin and for Melissa and our time in God's word this morning. Lord, we just, um, first of all, we thank you for these good reports, Lord. In the midst of these terrible, terrible diseases, the sickness of cancer, there's hope. And it's in Jesus, not in chemotherapy or radiation. Lord, you're the healer. And we thank you that you've given men wisdom to, to handle these diseases. But Lord, we know that ultimately, at your word, it could be gone in a moment. And Lord, we thank you that you're just answering prayers for Melissa and for Kevin, Lord. I thank you for these two good reports and these, for these two people, Lord, that we've been so devastated to hear by, about. And, and so, God, we rejoice in your faithfulness. We thank you for your goodness. And Lord, we pray for continued healing for Kevin and for Melissa. Lord, we pray that that cancer would be eradicated from their bodies in the name of Jesus. Lord, I thank you that we can just come to your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, that your word is a guidebook for life. It's full of your promises. It helps us to... uh, live the spirit-filled life. And Lord, that is our desire. And we pray today, God, just as we come to your word, that you would challenge our hearts, Lord. We pray, God, that you would be glorified. We pray, God, that we would be inspired to run for you. We, we pray, God, that as we spend time in the written word, we would be led to the living word, the son, Jesus. And so, Jesus, just be glorified. Anoint this time, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Your bulletin said second, but we're in first. And uh, we've been away from our series in 1 Corinthians for a little while. And I think it's kind of necessary just for me to do a quick recap of where we were because it really explains where Paul begins to go in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Back in chapter 8, we looked at this conversation that kind of seems silly to our culture or whatever, but it was one on, a, on the discussion of, of eating meat and meat sacrifice to idols. And as Paul discussed that, he talked about grace, he talked about freedom, he talked about liberty and Christ and the practical outworking of the law of love in the hearts of God's people. And you know, we expounded upon that, the idea that we are uh, free in Christ, and yet we practice our freedom in Christ tempered by the law of Christ, uh, the law of love. And we make decisions so as to be considerate of those around us and not uh, forcibly make other Christians run ahead of their conscience and their understanding of their freedom in Christ. And one of the things I, I said at the end of the message in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is that often there's, there's no point in arguing about necessarily about right and wrong, but rather how will this affect my brother and sister in Christ? Sometimes that's the case. Other times, right and wrong needs to be battled out. And Paul um, lifted up this uh, debate surrounding meat sacrifice to idols to basically its highest point um, to help us understand that we, we live in the light of the cross and like Jesus did, we have to make a decision to lay our lives down for others. That, that greater 
Uh, love has no man than this, then he lay down his life for his friends. And so bottom line for Paul was this. He says, if, if meat makes my brother stumble, then I'll never, I'll never eat it because I don't want to make him stumble. And so he kind of leaves off there and comes into chapter 9. And chapter 9 takes a little bit of a different feel. And here's how I would describe it. You know, everywhere where Paul went, he was dogged and, and chased by uh, these legalistic men who despised grace, despised the doctrine of grace that Paul proclaimed. And these men sought to essentially shake the confidence of infants in Christ and those who had put their faith in Jesus uh, through the ministry of Paul. And in Corinth, they were doing that, and it was a typical thing for Paul by attacking the man Paul. They were attacking him as an apostle. They were attacking him as a pastor to uh, try and bring legalism upon those who had come to faith in Christ. And Paul was clearly a man called by God, uh, clearly called to be an apostle, and those who opposed him tried to deny the fact that he was an apostle. Um, today, 100%, there are those with apostolic ministries and giftings serving in the kingdom of God. But in the kind of official, the official sense, an apostle of the Lord Jesus, those first 12 original apostles were men who had been, who had physically seen Jesus Christ, had physically been commissioned by Jesus Christ to the work of the ministry, and their ministries were confirmed by signs and wonders and miracles. And Paul's enemies um, challenged the idea that he was a true apostle because he said he wasn't connected to Jesus and his earthly ministry. He's not a true apostle because when was he commissioned by Jesus? He doesn't work with the signs of an apostle. And so following this discussion from chapter 8 where Paul was talking about meat, um, he continues on this theme that greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And he uses the discussion of his own calling as an apostle to illustrate that principle that he was laying, that believers lay down their lives for others. And at the same time, we're going to see he was defending his life and his ministry. He says this in verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not, seen our, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship. So like I mentioned, one of the requirements of those early apostles was that they had seen the resurrected Christ and we know certainly Paul had seen Jesus, had been commissioned by the Lord Jesus. He saw the Jesus in his glory on that road to Damascus when he was knocked off the saddle of his horse and he beheld the risen Lord of glory sitting on his throne. And Acts chapter 26 tells us that Jesus said to him, rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things which you have seen of me and to those things in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes 
so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place amongst those who are sanctified by faith in me. That was the time Paul saw Jesus and received his commission and calling from Jesus. Were there signs that accompanied the ministry of Paul? Of course there were. We can read about him in the New Testament. For sure there was. And as he began to defend himself, he didn't even appeal to those signs as a defense of his ministry because there was a, a far greater um, proof that accompanied his ministry, and it was this. There were people in Corinth who had turned to faith in Jesus Christ. They believed in their hearts and they confessed with their mouths that Jesus is Lord in response to the preaching of the word through the lips of Paul. The church in Corinth was proof of Paul's apostleship. He says, if to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. You are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. See, the evidence that Paul truly was a servant of God commissioned by the Lord was this, that wherever he went, the Spirit of God confirmed the message that was preached. Men were convicted of sin. Men turned in faith to Christ. People were given the assurance of forgiveness and justification, and, and new life was formed in them, born in them in Christ Jesus. It, demonstrating the reality of what had taken place in their hearts and in their lives. They were born again, born of the Spirit. And the church in Corinth was proof of Paul's apostleship. He said this in verse 3, This is my defense to those who would examine me. So, you know, what did the critics say? What, what, what would the critics say? Well, they'd say, well, then fine, look at Paul. You know, he doesn't have the same confidence as the other apostles. He doesn't take financial support for his ministry. He doesn't even have a wife that travels with him. He, he goes about ministry alone, and they would say things like, you know, he knows he's not a real apostle like Peter and John and those guys. I mean, he doesn't even depend on his ministry to make a living. Well, Paul says this in verse 4. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? as do the other apostles and brothers of the Lord and, and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I have, who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Uh, Paul's going to go into this discussion on the right of those who minister to receive their, their wages, their salaries from doing the work of the ministry. And Paul says, look, I, I, I do ministry among you. I, I have the right to, to eat and to have food and to receive that from those whom I minister to. I, I deserve to be welcomed and cared for as a minister of Christ, he says. Now, Paul was definitely married at some point in time because he was a, a member of the Sanhedrin, uh, which meant you had to be of the age of 30 and you had to be married to be a member of the Sanhedrin. But at this point, I mean, we don't know what ha what's happened with Paul's wife, if she's abandoned him when he came to faith or if she passed away. He never, he never tells us, but um, if he had a wife, she had the right to be supported by the church. And he mentions Cephas, Simon Peter. 
who was well known about Peter that he brought his wife with him in his travels and in the work of the, the ministry she traveled with him. It's mentioned here Jesus' brothers, James and Jude, who both apparently had wives and whose wives traveled with them. They were married men. And Paul said, I have the same right, but I don't use it. He also says here that he had the right to devote his full time to the ministry. The other apostles weren't required to work regular jobs since they were busy doing uh, God's work and they received their financial support from those they ministered to. And Paul said, I have the same right, but I don't use it. He didn't have to make tents. The other apostles did not work to support themselves because they gave themselves completely to the ministry of the word. But Paul and Barnabas worked with their own hands to support not only themselves, but the men who labored, labored with them. And Paul preferred to go amongst the pre-saved, the ungodly. He preferred to work with his hands amongst the ungodly. And there were benefits in his ministry because of that. You know, I think about those who, who minister for the kingdom of God. I, I always think it's a, a shameful thing when the church and those who represent Jesus appeal to those who don't know Jesus for finances and for money. That, that bugs me. Doesn't that bug you? That bugs me. You know, once in a while... Uh, or. Once in a while, um, individuals will make this offer to me, and, and I have a few local folks, and, and I love them. They're, they're dear folks, not, not a part of our church, but they'll say, hey, you know, if you ever need to do a fundraiser for your church, we'd love to help you with that. Uh, recently, you know, because we did the pig roast, I was going, well, what, what is that? You know, if you ever need to do a fundraiser, we'll help you with that. And I just think, you know, I think the gospel principle and the principle of the scripture is, is not to make appeals to those who don't know Jesus. You know, it's been well said that, that we appeal to God's people to give generously. But if you're not a believer in Christ, we'd actually ask that you don't give. That's what I would say to you this morning. We would appeal to believers to give generously. But if you don't know Jesus, hold off, don't give. In fact, I want to tell you, we have a gift for you. It's called eternal life in Christ Jesus, and it's free. We'll help you find it in Christ. The offering is for believers, and we never want the offering, the tithes, and the collections to be a point of stumbling that would cause someone to reject the gospel of Jesus. And Paul here, as he's talking and he's working amongst the Corinthians, his, his heart was really this. He was not going to wheedle, hand, wheedle money out of the hands of those who didn't know Jesus and put up an offense for the gospel. He made a choice to work. See, God's method uh, really in the kingdom is this, is that the gospel of God should be supported uh, by those who give out of a love for Jesus Christ. And when God's servant, for whatever reason, isn't properly supported, God's servant should not be above working with their own hands to make a living. You know, our entire church staff, our entire church staff uh, works with its own hands. Blake's got a job. Brian's got a job. Shona's got a job. I have one outside of the church. 
You know, and it's something that's kind of developed. It wasn't, it wasn't by design. It just happened. But I would say this. I think it's a real blessing to our church. It's a blessing for each one of us, and it's a blessing to the church and to the community. And the reality is, is sure, I could take a full-time salary, but we'd have to make sacrifices in other places. And so at this time, look at, I would say of all of us, happy to work and happy to preach. Happy to work and want freedom to preach. And at the same time, and that was Paul. At the same time as he's talking here, it's totally right that God's servants should be supported by the church. He says in verse 7, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruits? Or who tends a flock without getting some of them out? Look, we get what he's saying. The government provides for its military staff. The farmer and the, and the, the shepherd, of course, expect to receive the fruits of, of their labors. And so Paul goes on. He says in verse 8, Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law, the law of Moses, say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Uh, Paul takes this Old Testament law about an ox and he applies it to the preacher. I don't know if that's a slag against preachers or just animals. Be suburban. I don't know what it is. But oxen, we know, treaded, treaded out the grain. And oxes, and, and Paul's saying this, it would be animal cruelty to put a muzzle on the ox while it treaded out the grain. And so God's law made a provision for the well-being of the ox. While it treaded out the grain and the end, if the, if the animal became hungry, it could stoop and bow and eat of the very wheat that it was treading out. And Paul is explaining here the right of those who minister to be supported by those to whom they minister. He goes on. Verse 12. If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Now, apparently in Corinth, it was already their custom to support other ministries and leaders, says Paul. Uh, so he says, why would it be unusual that you support us? But he's using himself here as an example of, of uh, the principles that he taught us in chapter 8. He didn't want himself to be an obstacle for the way of the cross and the message of Jesus. He says in verse 13, pulls another example. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. We see that in the Old Testament. The priests had right to take uh, food from that which people brought, their tithes and their offerings. The, the priests fed their families and fed themselves through that which was brought. And so Paul says it's perfectly true that a, and right that a minister of Christ um, should be able to make a living from those 
to whom they minister to. You know, um, a few years back, I was, I was traveling to attend our pastor's conference, probably going back six, seven years, and um, it was a slow day at YVR, and when I came through customs, it was uh, heading to the U.S. There was time, and I got chatting with the customs officer, and we all know how they are. Yeah, pretty stern and straight and no funny business. And I said, I'm, attending a, I'm going down to attend a conference. And he said, what kind of conference? I said, oh, it's a pastor's conference. And he says, oh, you're a pastor. And usually when you meet American border guards, that's like, that's in your back pocket. That really helps you in their culture. And uh, he said to me, this one said to me, uh, do you get paid for being a pastor? And I said, yeah, I do. And he said, well, I have a problem with that. <laughs> now, I was carrying my laptop and my Bible, and he had a gun and handcuffs and <laughs> the ability to reject me from entering his country. And so I thought, well, there's no chance I'm backing down. <laughs> so uh, I said, really? You have a problem with me getting reimbursed for, you know, the work that I do? I must have been feeling lippy or something like that. I don't know. But he said, well, I have a problem with those TV preachers in the South. And we got into a discussion, and I said, well, I can assure you, you know, those TV preachers that you see are, are, are not the norm. You know, the average pastor in a lot of uh, communities is serving, firstly, out of his love for God, and secondly, out of what he receives as an income. And... Uh, you know, I said, there's lots of places where they're underpaid where they, where they serve. And, you know, um, he stamped my passport, and, and I went, and there was no strip church or anything like that. <laughs> and, you know, uh, actually, walking away from that conversation, I would, assu- I would assume that likely, um, just from some cues I got in that, in that conversation with that particular fellow, that he was likely a part of that, uh, part of the Jehovah Witnesses. Uh, which, which, is a, which is a cult, and they challenge that very uh, teaching. It's another area where they have departed from the Scripture out of one of many. That's another area where they have departed from the clear teaching of Scripture that we see Paul talking about here. And, and they're bent on the fact that you send the money to their organization rather than feed somebody locally. It's, it's sick in my mind. Anyways, I'll try not to rant this morning. But really, it is their organization fleecing the finances of a local body rather than looking after those who are right there. Verse 14, Paul says this. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So it's God-ordained support for those who do ministry and proclaim Christ. Verse 15. Paul says this, he begins to explain himself. He says, I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. I love love Paul. Paul is a dude. Paul was not trying to fleece anybody. He was not trying to work his way into anyone's pocket or wallet. He did not want the Corinthian church to send him money. He just wanted to make the point that he didn't allow, uh, well, he says here, I'd rather die than take money from you. Verse 16, 
For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of of my right in the gospel. Paul says, I'm happy to preach the gospel without charge. Because it was his job. It was his calling before God to preach whether men supported him or not. He would preach the gospel free of charge. In fact, he says, woe to me. Woe to me if I do not preach. And Paul here is not glorifying himself. And letting go of, of his right to be supported in, in order to preach, he's not trying to glorify himself. He's just saying, look, I have no choice. I preach. Pay me or not, that's how it is. Reminds me of Jeremiah. You know, in Jeremiah chapter 20, we can read the story about Jeremiah who was in prison. He was in a dungeon cell. And from that place and the persecution that he was receiving on speaking in the, from speaking in the name of the Lord, he, sa he said this, I'm tired of speaking for God. No one's listening to me, he said. People are mad at me. Some people are trying to kill me. I am not going to speak anymore, Jeremiah said. Until he realized that the word of God was like a fire in his bones that he could not hold in. And he said, I have to preach. I have to. And Paul had that same inner compulsion from the Holy Spirit. He loved to teach and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Woe to me if I do not preach. Boy, I pray that that would be my heart and every single one of our hearts in, in, in this room, that, that we would say, whoa, I have a responsibility to make Christ known. I have a responsibility to proclaim the gospel. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus saves sinners from death. Jesus gives the free gift of eternal life to those who believe in him and who confess him as Lord. Jesus brings peace. Jesus is peace. Paul said, whoa, if I don't preach it. And as the servant of the Lord proclaims Christ and does so willingly, gladly preaching the gospel of Jesus, whether there's reward on this side or not, there's reward in heaven. And so whatever, you know, people do in response and support to Faithful ministry on this side of the grave. Hey, man, it is what it is, but God rewards on the other side. And Paul says this, what is my present reward? Th that I make money preaching the gospel? No, that I get to make Christ known. That's my reward. Huh? My reward is this, I don't abuse the gospel for my own gain. And thank God, you know, Paul didn't say to men who were dead in their sin, Give your money, and then I'll preach to you about the message of Jesus. Pay up, and then I'll proclaim Christ to you. No, Paul said, I will preach Christ whether I receive a dime or not. Verse 19, for though I am free from all, 
I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. And so though Paul wasn't obligated to anyone or to anything but Jesus, he offered himself as a servant to all men. Verse 20. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. You know, Paul is talking about something that seems like a real paradox. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm free from all men, yet I make myself a servant to all men. It's not talking about being a chameleon here. It's not just going with the flow of the crowd. Paul sought to win people to Jesus by being sensitive to their needs. He sought to win people to Jesus by identifying with them Because he knew that he was free because of the work that Christ had done in his heart and his life, he was able to serve others and set aside his own rights for their their sake. And he's a good example to us. You know, we should try to, to meet people where they are today and, you know, expect to see changes later as God works in their hearts and in their lives. You know, it said a a good witness seeks to build bridges, not walls. Paul's culture, it was Jew and Gentile. And what separated them was the law and and the covenants by which they lived. And and Paul sought to live in a way so that he did not uh, offend Jew or Gentile. He did not, you know, parade his liberty and freedom from the law before the Jew, and he did not impose law upon the Gentile. He adapted as he did ministry amongst different groups. And Paul's great object was to get really to the heart, get into the hearts of men so that he could proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ to them. He goes on, he says this in verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Um, I like Paul because he's, he's kind of a red-blooded male. He likes sports. You know, he talks about boxing. He talks about the games. He talks about uh, running. And here he begins to use this illustration of athletics. As he does, I want to preface this conversation with this statement. Really, um, in, the, in the scripture, there are two lines of truth that run parallel to one another. And it's important that we get one so that we get the other uh, and define them. The first one is this, salvation. Salvation is by grace, in, by grace alone, faith in Jesus Christ. But the scripture also speaks of reward. And Paul's going to begin to talk about reward that comes based on devoted service 
to the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's important that the two tracks are kept separate, that they run parallel towards one another because salvation is not a reward. It's clear. It need to always make that clear. Salvation is not a reward. Salvation is not a reward for anything you or I do. Heaven is not a reward because of faithfulness to God here on earth. That is the mistaken concept of many people. Salvation is a gift through Jesus Christ. A free gift. Eternal life is a free gift. Heaven is our eternal home and it is open to all who put their faith in Jesus Christ. You know, you don't pay for your place in heaven with money. We don't earn it with tears. You don't gain access through your sacrifice or by disciplining yourself or by gifts that you give or anything that you do. It's a gift from God. And that's a freeing revelation. Quit trying to earn heaven or earn the favor of God and live in his grace. Like that old, you know, poem hymn. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Paul said, by grace you are saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one should boast. Salvation is a gift. But at the same time, the scripture says, and Jesus declared, behold, I am coming and I bring my reward with me. When he comes, he will bring his reward with him. He will reward us for our faithfulness. He will reward us for our service to him on earth. And if we uh, count on that reward to be the key that opens the gate of heaven for us, then you need to know this, it won't. Only... A life surrendered to Jesus enters into heaven. But there is reward according to service and faithfulness. And Paul brings that here, uh, brings that out here in this text with this illustration of the race and the runner. You ever been in a race? Races are fun. You got an old marathoner over there in Nancy, right? I used to do races when I was young. Bike races. I love that stuff. Races are fun. When you're racing, you know, you're, you're competing against other people. I used to use this image in my head when I was cycling. I used to do lots of cycling when I was a teenager. I, I would picture the person in front of me, I'd try to reel them in like a fish. <laughs> then I get to that one, and I go, okay, next. I'm going to reel them in. I'm going to beat these guys across uh, the finish line. And the goal of a race is to, to get first place to get the gold medal, to receive all of the honor and the adulation of being the winner. That's the goal of the race. But, you know, as you age, <laughs> you know, I've discovered I just can't keep up with younger people, and I'm just approaching 40. I found that on the ice. I can't catch the young guys anymore. And... As you age, your racing even starts to change. You just say, well, I'm competing against myself now. You know, I just want to better my time. But that's actually a better picture of what the race is that Paul is talking about. Because what is the competition as we go for the finish line? Is it each other? Is that the Christian life? We clamber and try to gain on one another? It's a spiritual race. What is the competition? It's not each other. We're not running to beat other people. We're running, Paul says, to obtain a prize. Our goal is the prize. 
And as we run, you know, there's, I, I think, you know, you, you can't control the circumstances God has put you in. He, he puts you where, you where he puts you. If we, we say, oh, well, I want to be like that person. I want to run against them. Boy, that ends up in heartache. Be faithful in the spot where God has placed you and run the mission he's called you to run. That's what he's judging you on as you aim for the finish line. Paul says this, verse 25. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. You know, if you've done any athletics or you know people that are highly involved in sport, there's much self-control involved. Discipline. Makes me think of the week we just spent at hockey camp. Last year when we were at hockey camp and there were pros training us, you know, at different times throughout the day when we were goofing off, they were exercising self-control and going and working out themselves. I, I remember watching one of them as we were on the field playing soccer, just goofing around with the kids. What was he doing? He was going around the track. He moved to the side of the grass and he was doing crunches and exercises and, and the season was months away but he was keeping himself in shape, disciplined, self-control. And Paul says in the Christian life, that's necessary. And your goal is this, victory to obtain the prize, the reward, the honor that God will bring and when it's here on earth, men go to great lengths. You know, men will even uh, discipline themselves in, in self-control on not how just to train, but how to cheat so that they'll get the honor and the glory to win the prize. I think of uh, Lance Armstrong. Great example of that. Oh, I, I, you know, I was into cycling. I used to look up to Lance. Before he was a road racer, he was a mountain biker for many years, and then he transferred to the road bike, and it was dominating. It was awesome. You thought, wow, this guy is incredible. I even read in magazines that they, that they said he had a one-in-a-million body type, that his body only produced one-tenth of the lactic acid that most people. Meanwhile, he's cheating the whole way. He disciplined himself to be a pro at cheating. And what happened when he was discovered? He was stripped of the prizes and the rewards that he had won, the accolades. And people said, just a cheater. God has given us instructions, rules and directions in his word on how we're to serve, the attitude of heart that should behind it, be behind it, the, the heart of humility, the attitude of mind that should be behind it. And God promises we will be rewarded according, accordingly. You know, uh, many years ago, there was an athlete by the names of, of James Thorpe, and he was, uh, I think, Apache Indian from the U.S., and he competed in the games in Sweden and was dominating, dominating, so that the king of Sweden, when he handed him his awards, said this, you are the greatest amateur athlete in the entire world. And there was uh, someone who didn't like that James Thorpe had won those awards, and so he began to research, and he found out that James had 
played on some sort of team in his village and been paid $5 a week to uh, play on this team. And so the man brought it out into the open in the public and said, see, he's not an amateur athlete. He got paid five bucks a week. And the king of Sweden wrote to James Thorpe and said, you send back all of your awards. And they took back all of the awards that he had won at the games. And they were given to the man who got second place. The story actually goes that the man who got second place then forwarded them back to James and said, you were the winner, you beat me. They're yours. But James, you know, though he was called the the greatest amateur athlete in the world, even though it was by mistake, he didn't compete according to the rules and he was stripped of the rewards. And, you know, I think of, we think about God and running the race for the Lord and seeking to cross the finish line, the reality is, is, you know, you know, we don't make the rules. We don't get to just make up the rules for the competition as we go. You know, often people, instead of uh, following God's word, think that they could just make up the rules and follow their own inclinations of their heart and the imaginations of their mind and and do whatever they want, and that's how the competition works. But the scripture, we need to learn from the scripture, the heart and mind of God, and what he is expecting from us in his word, and then run accordingly. Paul says men compete for things that are, that are perishable, wreath, that'll dry out, but we are running for something imperishable. You know, the New Testament speaks of several different crowns that could be awarded to us in eternity. The crown of rejoicing. (laughs) Paul said that in 1 Thessalonians, that those who are looking forward to the coming of Jesus and who live with that perspective will receive a crown of rejoicing. The Scripture speaks in 2 Timothy chapter 4 of the crown of righteousness that will be given to some. The scripture speaks in Revelation chapter 2 verse 10 of the crown of life that will be handed out to others. The scripture speaks in 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 1 through 4 of the crown of glory which Christ will hand out. And I mean, you know that picture from the New Testament that we'll be given these awards and then the Bible says that we'll take our crowns and we'll lay them down at Jesus' feet and we'll say, no, you're the victor. You did it, Jesus. It was all you, Jesus. I just wanted to run for your glory. You have the glory. We'll lay it down. But we're running in a race. And we're to fix our eyes on the finish line. Not clamber against one another, but seek to live for God according to his guidelines. Paul says this in verse 26. So I do not run aimlessly. His eyes fixed on Christ. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. What great pictures, eh? You know what it means to run aimlessly. No, he set his sight where he was going. When he boxed, he made sure the punches landed. Verse 27. I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. 
a life focused on the finish line, a life focused on landing the punch. And Paul says, I learned to discipline my life for the sake of the gospel. I practice self-control for the sake of the gospel. Let me ask you this this morning. What is it costing you to live for Jesus Christ? I mean, look at the life of Paul here. What is it? I'm convicted by this question myself. What is it costing you to live for Christ? You know, we live in such a carefree society in a sense. I mean, we're not carefree because we have so much stuff and we worry about that. But we got food and we got roofs over our heads and all these things. What is it costing you to live for Christ? And like I said, it's not talking about earning salvation. It's talking about the self-discipline of an athlete seeking to win the prize. We live in a culture of self-indulgence where we fatten ourselves and we're careless and we're carnal. And Paul was encouraging the Corinthians and he encourages us today to put all that we have into living for Christ. Discipline the body. Keep it under control so that the spirit might rule. And Paul had one great goal in his life to bring glory to God. To bring glory to God. He sought to win the lost and he sought to build up those who knew Jesus. And he was willing, a great example to us of a man willing to pay whatever the cost, whatever it took, even if it meant sacrificing his own rights. He would do it. He sacrificed the immediate for the eternal, seeking to bring glory to Jesus. And you know, when we live with this focus, when, our, when the finish line that we have set our sight upon is to say, Jesus, I want my life to bring you glory. You know what happens? The Lord just makes ways for you to be used by him. You guys know that. You know that. Sometimes you just, you wonder, wow, God, how did this happen? How did this work out? Where were you working here? How did this? Look, when you give your life to Jesus and you say, God, be glorified through my life, he will make ways to bring himself glory. Fix our eyes on the finish line. Laying down our rights for the sake of the gospel. A great challenge from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Let's pray this morning. You guys stand with me. Worship team, I'm going to invite you guys to come. This morning we actually uh, are going to participate in communion, the Lord's Supper, and we have the, the cups and the bread here, which represent the the shed blood of Jesus and his body that was broken for us. And um, this morning, as we, as we worship, I would just invite you, uh, as your heart is prepared to just come and take those elements, the cup and the bread, and then to go back to your seat and just to take some time to think upon and to uh, contemplate the price that was paid for you so that you could live for Jesus. So that Jesus could purchase you from the penalty of sin and death. 
And this morning, if you're visiting here, uh, you are more than welcome to come and participate with us if Jesus Christ is your Lord. And if Jesus Christ isn't your Lord, then now's a great time to surrender your life to him. And then by faith to come to the table and partake of the elements which represent what he did for you so that you could be saved. And so this morning, uh, as we just get ready to come, let's pray. And um, then we'll have communion. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you, Jesus, for the great price that you paid. We thank you, Jesus, for what it costs so that you could have us. You gave your very life. Your body was broken and your blood was shed. And Jesus, in response to you, we give you our lives. We believe in our hearts that God raised you from the dead and we confess with our mouths, Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus, uh, we invite you to be the Lord of our lives, to forgive us of our sin, to establish your rule in us, to bring new life, to fill us with your spirit. And Jesus, we pray this morning that as a church, we would count the cost of what it means to follow you. We pray, Jesus, that we would be like trained athletes, disciplining ourselves and exercising self-control to serve you, laying down our rights so that others can come to faith in Christ, so that we can proclaim the gospel. Jesus, we're just praying that you'd have all of us today, everything. <coughs> and so, Lord, we surrender to you. We thank you for your word to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, just as we sing and you, you're prepared, come and receive the communion elements. <laughs>